Hey there, everyone. From beautiful Fort Collins, Colorado, halfway between Cheyenne and Denver, and 5,003 feet above sea level, I'm Jeff Haber, and you're listening to No Bed of Roses. No Bed of Roses is brought to you by Conexus. Maybe your company is creating video content or you're a brand looking for that coveted direct connection with viewers. Maybe you're an established YouTube creator or you're just starting out. Conexus Interactive Web Video Solutions enables viewers while watching your videos to simply tap on the items they're interested in, directly connecting them to the merchant's shopping cart to easily purchase those items. This all happens without ever leaving the video experience and without ever leaving the site where they started watching the video in the first place. Connexus shoppable video content works using any browser on any device. No download, no plugin, nothing to install. Interactive video like you've always wanted it. Find out more at connexus.com. That's K-E-N-X-U-S dot com. Welcome back, everyone. Flying down a paved road on a bicycle at 45 miles an hour in skin-tight Lycra may not be everyone's idea of just another day at the office. For today's guest... Pushing the envelope as an ultra-athletic, aggressive competitor almost seemed to come easy until it didn't. Ali Tetrick, world-class pro cyclist, scientist, and entrepreneur, is as comfortable in a clean and pressed lab coat doing research as she is covered in mud after a 155-mile gravel event where she burned 5,600 calories just crushing it joins us to share her story from cowgirl to Olympic hopeful and then some. Here's Allie. We're meniscus twins though, actually. I blew out my left meniscus, played NCAA tennis. I actually couldn't finish my senior year because my knee just popped out of socket, which is what brought me into this whole endurance space. Cause if I can just keep going forward moving and get rid of all that side to side stuff, then my meniscus yeah, the lateral movement is what kills you. Yeah. Yeah. I can't do lateral anymore. My knees don't like it. Do you still play tennis then or you avoid that? I play a few times a year with my mom. She's, she's quite good. Um, we have a lot of fun, um, but it's pretty frustrating and it's, it was a hard sport in my body. So I can't really serve anymore. I tore my rotator cuff. My knee gets all inflamed and and then you know this too, like, but when you focus on one sport, and I, I'm a professional cyclist, so I ride my bike over 20 hours a week for the last, you know, 12 years. Uh, <laughs> mixing new exercise routines makes me really sore, and I wake up feeling like I get hit by a truck. Because it's just a whole new muscle set and group that you just never use. You go, whoa! I didn't know I. I didn't know I had that. That really hurts. And it's all those stabilizing muscles too. They get really fatigued. And so I can play about 30 to 45 minutes of tennis. And then I actually kind of think I'm going to injure myself if I keep playing because those stabilizing muscles are fatigued. And that's when you roll an ankle or my frayed meniscus, like my knee just pops out. I got this patella that just wants to slide out a socket, which is another birthday present. My parents got me 
Didn't know I wanted this, a vibrating plate. Like, it's like this 38-pound okay, thing you stand on. They're like, you need to work on your stabilizing muscles. This is your your parents yeah. gave you this. Yeah. Are, they, are they both athletes? Yeah, my dad played football at UCLA, okay. and my mom's an incredible athlete. She ran, and she's a little pre-Title nine, so she didn't play collegiate sports, but she played high school sports, and then now is an avid tennis player and rides her bike and my dad shreds mountain this bikes faster than DNA, I do. This is your DNA, Allie. This is, right? You couldn't help yourself. I mean, you came out of the womb this way. This this is the, who you are. Uh, it's just a really fun way to look at it that, you know, sports can be for life. And I grew up on a cattle ranch pretty remote, so I didn't grew up, I didn't grow up like playing a ton of organized sports. So there was no soccer, volleyball, anything until basically high school. Cause once I could drive myself to sports, my parents were like, all right, we'll do that. But they weren't going to shuttle me back and forth. What about siblings? Um, I have an older sister and she played volleyball and then went into cross country, uh, running in college, did triathlon and cycling. And now, um, she's actually very pregnant and do. Auntie Allie is coming. That's nice. Congratulations. (laughs) I think I read, not, I think I know I read about your grandfather, your grandfather riding. He started riding competitively at 60. So my grandfather, Paul Tetrick, uh, who, uh, passed away a couple years ago, um, was who got me into the sport of cycling and got my father into the sport of cycling as well. He, was a army veteran and then became a contractor. He was a long distance runner and he never went to college, but he had this just knack for sports. He found cycling later in life, just trying to hang on to those group rides that were, um, you know, a bunch of young guys and he's 60 and just going and going and he's not getting dropped. And yeah, his knee, like he went from long distance running and then you know how runners go. They usually find cycling eventually a little less impact. He's 60 years old. He ended up winning amateur national masters championships here in the United States, like 17 times and super cool guy, um, steel. Like he's just like, was such a, <laughs> such a hard man. He and I just had this great relationship where he really introduced me to the sport of cycling and coming from tennis and being a biochemist. And I am not an adrenaline junkie and like in general, I downhill skiing. I, my dad loves it. He's shredding it with my sister. And I'm like, Hey, can I just have that money and go to the spa, go for a run? Maybe there's a Nordic track. Like I don't even like wakeboarding, you know? So like being a professional cyclist for the last 12 years is hilarious because I, I didn't get a lot of like kicks from going fast. I play tennis, non-contact sport, like don't touch me. <laughs> and, uh, but my grandpa was just saying, get into cycling. This will be great. You can go to the Olympics out. And I'm like, yeah, whatever. It's so dorky, you know, like Lycra, he's wearing those like bright outfits. I'm like, this is embarrassing. And then sure enough, um, I was gotten to running after playing tennis and I'm, you know, working in the lab and I had a lot of energy because I'm like cooped up, cooped up in this lab with like my little like lab coat on. And I'm like looking down at the Charles River. I'm living in Boston at the time. I'm like, people are just running all the time. I'm like, I want to go run. Then that doesn't last so long when you just beat your knees up. And we already talked about having bad knees. I bought a bike and I drove to Colorado to surprise my grandfather at a bike race. Showed up and I'm just like, anyone know where Paul Tetrick is? And I just got a bike, don't know how to clip in, probably immediately fall over. And then within two months, I'm at the Olympic Training Center and he's there and came to congratulate me and he just... He and I like got this really special bond over it because, you know, he was like I said, he's a pretty hard man and he took him a long time to tell me he loved me, you know, well into my in my 20s. He and I could talk bikes. I grew up in Los Alamos, which is in Santa Barbara County on the central coast of California. And then my parents now moved the ranch up to Redding, which 
um, is super NorCal. It's kind of think Mount Shasta are they, area. Are they active ranchers? Yeah, we have a cattle ranch still. And how many head of cattle do you guys have? A couple hundred. So this is really like a family ranch. Yeah, it's super cool. They're they're great cows. Um, they've had the herd now for you know longer since I've been around. So over 36 years they've had this herd and it's you know grass fed grass finished no hormones like i mean they've just done it this natural way this whole time before it became cool um and they're just such a really nice herd and i love going up to the ranch i'm actually going up next weekend but yeah I, I mean i'm just fortunate with family and you know if you can choose your own family too if you need to but actually my mom's parents lived on the ranch with us my entire life so i would had another set of grandparents uh that were wonderful kind of had a family compound on both ranches my mom's my mom's parents my grandma and grandpa that's why we get granny and grampy got it (laughs) so i had a set of grandparents that you know could take me to school help out with the ranch um and that was amazing they're just wonderful souls grampy i think he and i just had this weird bond and it could possibly that he was such a like a John Wayne mixed with a little Clint Eastwood like he was a hard he was a hard nut to crack and I like that challenge you know, like I like those personalities. Career army? No, he got drafted out of high school and he served in the in Korea, in the Korean conflict. Okay. He made sure I got that right. right. Um, and he was there for quite some time. And you know, he married, him and my grandmother met in elementary school, started dating in junior high and they were married before they were 18. And he got drafted right after they got married. And he spent, you know, his time, six to seven years abroad. And then came back and he was a contractor in LA. It's with Grampy that you have this this affinity. He just, he gets into cycling late in the game, finds that he's just naturally, he's just good. He's good at it. Guy, he's got some incredible lungs and he probably passed it down, you know, to my, my dad and, and, you know, me and my sister. But the guy is so fast. You know, he just took it up and... You know, he's pretty light and smart. He's a hard worker. And yeah, he just, I think his lung capacity just, he found his little niche and retired and just started pedaling around. What, you what know? is that, Allie? That's that v, your VO2, right? Is, is, VO2 is it, max. Yeah, VO2 yeah. max. And I, I think I saw that you're, are you working with Chris Car- Carmichael? I would say, and Allie, you'll correct me because I know enough to be dangerous, but Chris Carmichael really made, I think, U.S. cycling, U.S. men's cycling what it what it was, I don't know, what it was in its glory day and probably before Lance became the dark Lance, the evil Lance. And Chris was a pioneer in VO2 max, no? Yeah, Chris has done an incredible amount of work for our sport. Um, And I currently serve on the board for USA Cycling. I really love giving back to our sport. I think he just kind of also did the first, uh, Chris did the first kind of coaching, you know, this mass coaching, you know, where people could apply for coaching structures online. Now everyone does that, but that was probably a really great business model for him. But I've worked with a couple of his coaches the last, you know, basically my whole career. And I like having a coach. And I mean, for those that aren't you know, crazy obsessed with the sport. The coach for me also helps me balance my workouts and training and goals with my life balance and career off the bike. So it, the more structure I have I've, and the more busy I get, I actually feel like the more productive I am, but it, I need to like allocate so I don't go on my bike and waste two hours. Like I go on my bike, I do a structured workout and I come back and do this podcast or 
No, I haven't ridden my bike yet. That'd be way too early. You're so inspiring. I was just going to get up and just do a spin. And it's gorgeous here today in Fort Collins and just going to do a spin. But I rolled over and held my wife like the bum that I am. Just could not. Oh, bless your could, heart. That sounds amazing. Oh, it, like that is what like that's like the best statement ever because that's what you should do sometimes too. And people get really obsessed with like training and need to do all this. And like sometimes you just need to to enjoy life and life balance and like, do those results really matter? You know, like, how are you the happiest? I mean, I'm not even in your world competitive. This is just a, just for the love of the love of cycling. I think for just for me, Ali, it's the place where I, it's where I can disconnect. It's, uh, we were in LA for 17 years and I'd ride out of Marina del Rey and into PV and, and just climb and, and, uh, and even just a simple loop. It's just where I was able to just shut everything off, which sounds weird, I guess, because you're on a bike and kill yourself, but it's just, I would just get into the zone and, 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 that's just the, as soon as I got on a bike, it was like that for me, but I had dreams of being competitive, but it wasn't, I, I didn't have, and don't have your, your DNA. So going back to the VO2 max, did you, you said Grampy, Grampy had great lungs. Did, was he ever evaluated? I actually did test him because I worked in physiology. Ah. Um, and so I, I did a bunch of, I've done like thousands of VO2 max tests and blood lactate okay. tests. I did test him, but I didn't test him until he was like late seventies. Oh, okay. So that's was it still you know, was it still totally in different. Your your VOT VO two decreases rapidly. Like, yeah. Yeah, quite a bit. But it was still impressive. Like for those that don't need to know about the VO two numbers, like I went to a bike race with him, I have photos of it, and he's eighty years old and he did a twenty K TT in under thirty minutes at eighty, which is what's a twenty K TT? Oh. A time trial. Sorry, time trial twenty twenty K, so twenty kilometers. So you're looking a little little over twelve miles. TT stands for time trial. So we did a little over twelve mile time trial in under thirty minutes at the like time trial, which is point A to point B. How fast can you cover this ground? And he did it in under thirty minutes. Like that's over twenty four miles an hour. And he was how old? Like eighty one. This is nuts, man. He's a freak. He's not human, Grampy. That's crazy. I mean, most people don't ride at 24 miles an hour. You know, like it's hard. Even sometimes in my training rides, I barely get over 15. Yeah, listen, you're on somebody's <laughs> wheel. You're drafting somebody. I mean, that's he's cranky. Is he in an aero suit? Is he wearing an aero helmet? Yeah. Who cares? He needed a freaking turbo boost pack on his strapped on his back to get that kind of speed. That's amazing. That's very yeah. He set a national record that day too. So. Wow. Okay. All right. So you're let's okay. Well, let's cut to the chase, Tetrick. You're from a family of freaks. That's what it is. Okay. That's, that's <laughs> They're really sweet. 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 Well, you you said yeah, maybe Swedish, maybe really German German freaks. <laughs> This seems like it was your it was your destiny to get into into cycling. You played tennis in college, but you grew up as a you you're a cowgirl. Were you were you actually a cowgirl? Oh yeah, I was like I, I did cutting, and we had a bunch of cows. We rounded up on my horses, and I didn't play sports. So that's what you know. Until I didn't play sports until high school, and yeah, so I'm just a full blown like cowgirl. Still am. <laughs> Got a lot of boots. I actually got asked the question if I had more boots than bikes, and that was actually a really hard question to ask. I started counting, and then it got awkward. That's a good question. So, do you get and are there horses on the ranch now? That will you go out and help with the uh, with the herd, or you just you go and and you just you just ride trails? So the funny thing is, is I told you my parents have this herd for so long. We do have a horse um, on the property. 
but uh the herd is very well like just like the nicest herd that just like meander from pasture to pasture as you you know rotate as as you should and my dad also has got his mountain bike so we have a horse and he, he loves to round up the cows on a mountain bike that's awesome and it's hilarious that is <laughs> like and it's awesome like yeah they're not you know they know which pasture to go to when we need to right. move them and when we need to work them like throw some hay in there. So there's not really a lot of outliers in the herd, which makes it a very easy ranching, but took a lot of time and, but you these know, are, these the right are beef cows. cattle, right? Only so mm-hmm. you're, you're, you're taking the calves that, and you're fattening them up and you're selling those off, but you're keeping the, you've got steers and you've got, you've got heifers and you're breeding them. Is this, is this what's, what's going on? Yeah. Our, uh, my dad's business model is a little different. Um, so we don't feed feed the calves, um, only the ones we're keeping. And we only keep some heifers every year. So you keep your favorite heifers. And I have some photos of that, but you know, you take the biggest, like the, you know, the ones that look like they're going to produce the best calf, um, and how many you need to use. And then we feed those and tame them down. So every day you go down and that's the, like the most fun part, hand feed them, pet them, talk to them. So you get them really socialized before letting them back in the herd. And we actually sell the, we don't even, get steers we sell the male the male calves just immediately after weaning or like prior to weaning uh after you cut the. let herd. me ask you is this is this a tough thing with growing up knowing these knowing these uh animals as intimately as you do and then having the calves born wean quickly and then you're selling them off is there is there an emotional connection for you with them is that hard or is it just very this is just your ranchers is what we do i have a friend who's a cowboy and from montana uh ali and he said man or dude there's a lot of death on a ranch i i guess it i mean we never really grew up eating our own cows um so maybe that's where i was able to compartmentalize where they go also you know, not having any of those procedures happen on our property unless, you know, accidents and, you know, those obviously happen. I am, uh, I have a deep respect for life and animals and I love animals, but I still eat meat and I do love a great steak. So I, I think there's purposes for all of us and, you know, what, whatever you believe, you know, that's your belief. And for me, I, I really do love a ribeye. That's right. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. No, I, I, I get um, it. I was just wondering, I, I spent seven summers on a working farm. I wanted to be a vet when I was a kid. Then I was, I was there when we put down our first goat. The, you know, we had a euthanized goat. I lost, just completely lost it, Allie. And I'm curious when you are that, when you're that lit up about socializing them and getting close to them and you're naming them and you know them, if that separation is, is difficult. You know, I love agriculture and growing up in it and, I do a lot of work right now with the, the dairy industry and have a, some some projects there. But here in Petaluma, there's a ranch uh, at Stemple Creek, and they're grass-fed, grass-finished. And they were on the How I Built This podcast, actually, and they're my friends. I met them on a bike ride because I ride by their ranch all the time. But how they were able to pivot this their beef sales that were supposed to go to restaurants and pivot that into direct-to-consumer during the pandemic. They're happy cows out there. Let's get back to this, this cycling thing because you can do it. You're just... You're just good. You're natural. You got Grampy's thing going on. You got big lungs, right? I mean, it just happens. Yeah. Within two months, I didn't know how to clip into a bike. And two months later, I'm at the Olympic Training Center. That's yeah. kind of nutty, right? It's, in your world, are there other friends of yours who are riders who had that rapid trajectory? A few. Like I mean, I think it happens in women cycling a little bit more. Um, maybe now a little less common, just 
you know, the sports keeps growing, which is a gr- good thing. You know, when I started. Why does that happen in, in women's cycling? Because when they find a great woman athlete, there, is there momentum behind them? Why does it happen? I think in the U.S., since cycling isn't a popular sport necessarily, it's kind of a niche sport. So if you're a good athlete, you know, you might be playing basketball, soccer, you know, volleyball, cross country. I mean, there's there's lots of places you go. And from the men's side of things, like, you can you have to start early and you can make a living wage as a professional male cyclist early but you need to start earlier women we do in endurance sports we do peak later than men um that's science and we can go a little longer we're really good at endurance sports so hold on let's let's not, I, let's, let's not gloss over this thing right here you're smarter than us and more mature than us out of the gate and then physiologically physically you peak later than us, than men. Yeah, yeah. It's just further proof that you're the superior beings. It's just, it's just the way it is. No comment. Um, <laughs> it's true. It's true. You can, you can bring life and then you can, you can just, I mean, you can just hammer and you just have this arc where you're in earlier when we're still just, you know, banging ourselves over the heads with things. We just don't know what's going on. And really guys, we don't evolve very much. I mean, we don't. It's just the unfortunate. You're the scientist. You could tell me better. I'm, I'm probably talking out of my butt here, but I'll just say my empirical evidence, uh, you know, uh, file, it says we, we don't evolve very much. So that window, Allie, that sounds to me so extraordinary from kind of being discovered to Olympic training center in two months. That sounds crazy fast. You're saying no, for women that, that, that can happen. It can't. Yeah, it can happen. Um, some of it's just like untapped talent and we're trying to do a better job identifying that talent earlier. It's just also getting a full ride scholarship to go run cross country or play soccer or, I mean, tennis is very rare. Evelyn Stevens and I, I think are the only tennis players that came into the sport that I, I can recall to be able to identify that talent, but it's not an NCAA sport. So if you are a good female athlete, you're probably going to be and same with men, right? You're probably going to go more towards those heavy hitting sports that our country celebrates. Since we do peak later, you have your college education, kind of like me, I think this story happens a lot is you still kind of feel competitive. What should I do? Get into running, you know, some, or I live in the Bay area in California. So cycling's really popular, hop on a bike and you go smash, you know, your group ride or something or a couple local races. And you just, for me, cycling was really intuitive. It was, it sounds Neanderthalic, but like I might've made up that word, but like, it was like the harder I stamped on the pedals, the faster I went. And that to me was exhilarating versus in tennis. I needed, I didn't start early enough. So I'm playing tennis, but you know, we already discussed, I didn't play organized sports growing up. So I started playing tennis as a really gifted athlete, but I was getting crushed by people that had more experience right. than me. And I could not hit enough tennis balls in my lifetime to beat them at, the, at, at that point. They already at that started point. Sure. Yeah. 18 yeah. You know, years before yeah. me. And so I, I like struggled to make the lineup my whole career. And it's like, yes, it was great to play tennis, but every day you like looking at the lineup, like sweet, I made six again and you only play six, right? Like that's as good as I was going to get. Every once in a while, he'd have me play number one because I look the part and you can pick the lineup. And he's like, just swing for the fences out. Can you last more than 40 minutes on court? And I'm like, ah, we're playing A&M. <laughs> but cycling was um yeah, much more intuitive. And to me, I loved, you know, the direct relationship of the more I trained, the harder I went initially. Now I know better that, 
But you know, when you first start the sport, the more you ride, the faster you get. Tennis, the more I played, didn't necessarily make me any better. And I would cry a lot and get frustrated. And it was very emotional. What about the mental? So that's the physical, Ali. So you get on there, you go, oh man, I just, I just stomp on these pedals and I can go. I feel it. And you have that physical, visceral connection. What about the mental? I mean, tennis is a very mental game, uh, a, a game of strategy and pacing and placement and I mean, so many different aspects. How would you compare that to, to cycling? Cycling is more than you just getting on the, on the bike and stomping on those pedals. In an elite level, when you're in a big road race racing the Giro or Tour de Flanders or something like that, you know, you're in a blob, this Peloton, right? All these people and there's team dynamics and all of that. But I would like in cycling, I mean, simplify that, take away the team and the like huge blob of Peloton. And it's really more, say it finishes up a big climb and it's really just against you. Like it's, yes, you can respond to another rider and there's attacking, there's the look back, there's all this like tactics, of course, like let's not disregard all the tactics, but really it's ultimately you and your brain and it's you. Like you have to respond to somebody else, but cycling to me was more about how I could perform the best. And yes, that's letting go of insecurities, being confident in what I can do, not going too early, not being tricked into going too late, you know, all of that. But in tennis, I felt I was actually playing somebody else and there's all this gamemanship, like how she, you know, chucks the ball across the court or what the line judge says. And I, I felt like it was more, which makes it a wonderful spectator sport. Don't get me wrong. Love it. But like, it's more of you against the other person. And in cycling, like we try to build these nemesis and, you know, this whole, you know, you against this other person, but really you're just pedaling your bike up a hill at the end of the day or sprinting or like, so you still have to do that. And I, I liked that because it was more about me and in a good way, like I could control my own destiny versus somebody else is delivering me a freaking nether slice backhand and that I hate. I think you excelled at time trialing you against the clock, you and the bike against the clock. Yeah. I would consider myself a time trialist, um, at, you know, in my career and yeah, it's just you against the clock, which is what my grandfather did the best. And for me, that was probably what we're saying. Like maybe I wasn't as strong physic, like, I mean, mentally for all that tactics or I don't like bumping elbows. We already talked, you know, no touchy, like (laughs) don't touch me while I'm riding or (laughs) playing any sports. So like, I, I don't want that adrenaline of sprinting or, and then I'm like pretty tall, so I can go uphill real fast, but I'm not a pure climber. And so time trialist is just control your controllables. Also super dorky, you know, like aerodynamics, skin suits, helmets, like your position on the bike, power, power to watts, analyzing the course. So it's um, pretty fascinating. So I think my science side liked that I could put everything in an Excel sheet, control what I could, and then just see what I had. And ultimately, I learned too that doing the best that you can do is your, like, that's like your, like where you should get your satisfaction from, not necessarily your result. Because it's like your performance versus your result. And so many people, like, they get off of a time trial, right? You're like, how'd you do? Oh, man, I sucked. I got fifth. Well, that's just your result. Like, how did you do? Like, if you, what if you hit your all-time, like, personal best that day, but you're just mad that four other people were faster than you? Like, you did the best time trial you've ever done in your life, and it just ended up you were fifth. But at the end, you're still competitive, and you go, well, man, there are four people that are better, that are faster and stronger than me. I do suck. I do suck. Now, where's yeah, that Yeah, but it's, like, so board? relative, right? Like, so many people get caught up in that, like, oh, I sucked, or, you know, this, and you're like, you're you're doing great or was that the best you could do? And that's usually what my grandfather, I'd call him after and he'd always be the first person I called after a time trial, especially 
you know, waterworks. I got third at nationals or something, you know? And he's like, well, did you do your best? Well, I, you know, I started too hard and then I blew up and then this corner I got scared. And he's like, okay, so fix that next time. Or, you know, like, just let it go now. There's nothing you can do to fix it. <laughs> like, do your best or change it. Ever the pragmatist. So time trialing is an event in and of itself, uh, or is it always included as part of a bigger race? Are you the solo athlete or are you the, you just, you break out for that event because you're strong in it, but you're still part of a team. How, how is that configured? It's, it's run both ways. So a time trial can exist within a larger race, like the Tour de France, for instance, you know, one stage is going to be a time trial. Every rider needs to do it. Time trials are, can be a one day race, which in the Olympics it is, for instance. So in there, that is a discipline in the Olympics for cycling is a time trial. And then there are a couple other one day races for a time trial, such as world championships or Pan American games, you know, things like that. And you mentioned now it is very much a sport of technology. I would equate it almost to uh, Michael Phelps and the whole thing when he was in the water. And that I think that was the year alley. Uh, and again, please correct me on any of this. They developed a, a skin suit. I'm going to say with quotes around it, which just reduced that in water friction by just enough to give an edge. And it was, that was a big leap forward for that sport cycling, the aero helmets that came in in time trials, which is also how long, how long have those been around those really sleek ones, Allie, at least a decade or more No. Yeah, probably more. And now actually we're learning like the aero helmets are getting smaller. Like they used to be huge and now they're getting smaller because they're learning like if you don't stay in this perfect static position, you're going to be like a parakeet in the wind versus this like sleek vessel you thought you were. So, um, so they're always looking at that drag yep. coefficient, looking to reduce that, re- reduce that skinny down. So uh, you've got the athlete, you've got the bike, you've got the outfit, you've got the helmet and the and the suit, and that's all uh, impacted by different aspects of technology and constant analysis and reanalysis. You talked about your spreadsheet, so it's not enough to just put your butt in the saddle and and just crank. I mean, you've got to have, or it helps to have, at least on the competitive level, somewhat of a scientific mind or a hunger for that kind of knowledge that comes from that scientific analysis. Yeah, I think at the elite level, absolutely. But I encourage most people to not overthink it when it comes to cycling, because we have enough bike dorks out there, including myself, that yeah, it's, it requires an immense amount of preparation, but also for people just trying to get into bikes, like not to be intimidated by that. So, you know, I'm into gravel now and, you know, just don't overthink it. Like what size tires, what's your pressure? You know, I'm just like, whoa, lower, lower tire pressure, bigger tires, lower life pressure. You know, it's, it's okay, man. Just get on the bike. <laughs> just get on the bike and ride. Right. I mean, cause that is who we are as kids. That there was a guy at my local bike shop back in LA. We were, you know, I was trying to get into the world, Alan, trying to learn and reading the cycling magazines. And he just said, Hey, you like riding when you were a kid, right? And I said, Yeah. And he goes, Just get on the bike and ride, man. I love it. I still love that. I mean, yeah, we can geek it out as much as possible. Like, I am a really good geek. Also, I like to just, you know, throw, throw it out, <laughs> throw it out the window and just ride. I know too much, though, unfortunately. Do you like to shut off your mind when you ride? Are you just, do you get into that zone? Or what is your zone when you're on the bike? Not competing. When you're you're riding for you, when you're riding for Allie, what is that zone? Actually, I love to shut off my mind in a lot of ways when I'm on the bike. And I, that's why I love road riding and gravel, um, riding as well. It's, I call it monotony. Like I love the monotony and the rhythm of it. 
I, I own a mountain bike now. I've ridden it a few times, but I mean, I like still like bigger roads, like single track where some people love all that mental stimulation of the terrain. I actually like the monotony and the rhythm and the flow of like road or gravel riding. That's just my type of personality. Like my brain looks like a single track pinball like thing in there. So if I can like the smoother, wider road I can have in front of me, <laughs> the better like my brain's releasing some of that energy. I think I, I try to let go. I, I, I feel like I'm very productive on the bike. I, I work in communications and creative marketing and brand activation. So I'll like write 10,000 emails in my head or come up with taglines or the strategy or I think about what I'm going to do with my life and what my mom thinks about me. And then I go back into, oh, this brand needs my help to do this. Oh man, like, can I win that race or not? Shut up. Don't think about it. You know, so we all know this, right? Our brain goes in all these places. So I'm never in a perfectly peaceful spot, but I'm always in a very retrospective, productive flow when I'm on my bike. I really love where my brain is when I'm out there. And I wish I could don't you ever wish you could just record in your brain? Like I do audio notes sometimes when I think of something really brilliant. What you find like when you're on your bike or exercising and these like flow moments. And I learned with me, some people find flow in very yeah extreme sports. You know, you, you hear about these, um, read about them, you know, like extreme like downhill sports or, you know, high adrenaline and finding that flow. And then for me, I learned that I think my flow comes it's a, it takes a longer time, but I start, I'm starting to find it in these longer endurance, you know, I get out there a little longer, you know, you, you get out and you're like, I don't want to go ride. You kind of complain to your wife, like, ah, it's windy out. Like what time's dinner, you know? And you like get out and like first 30 minutes, I'm just grumpy and I'm like, oh, it's windy. It's a little cold. I had to put on arm warmers. This is the worst. And then like an hour, hour and a half, two hours in. And then I start like, God, I love that cow. That's a beautiful cow. Like, oh, check that. <laughs> Look at that tree. Look at that bark as you're about to look at that cow. I love that cow. Exactly that, right? Just <laughs> the rhythm of that fence line yeah, going like across the texture, there. So, like yeah. the hills. Like the <laughs> like green is going to brown right now. Like it's just yeah. really like that texture and totally. that definition. And your tra- and your training partners like do the same thing too. You're like, have I ever seen a cow that well defined? I mean, like. So what's what's going on, Science Girl? What is happening oh man, in your dopamine, brain? Dopamine, serotonin, yeah. oxytocin, everything. Like everything's yeah. going on. Like you're, you know, this is why exercise is so healthy for us. You know, it's where you get these creative juices, and it is changing your brain chemistry. And I went through some mental health issues with my head injuries. You know, it's about changing brain chemistry too. Like you need to also calm down. Like it's short circuiting sometimes. You know, your brain is short circuiting, and exercise can really be a huge healer for that and then also don't crash on it either what happened with with that accident? um in 2010 uh, i just came from the giro was racing a race up in oregon called the cascade cycling classic in bend oregon giro d'italia is it, yeah. okay right Girodone because it's women you know we got to make sure it's clarified that we are racing the women's race this this is good to know. Is the route the same, or do they change it somehow? What do they, what do they what do they foolishly do still to modify the race for women? The Giro Don Giro d'Italia feminine, like I mean, whatever the the Giro d'Italia for women um, is actually one of our I think most iconic stage races women cycling has. It's ten days long, which is our legal limit. 
for UCI cycling for women to race. For those listening, the men race 21 days with two rest days. Uh, we race 10 days with no rest days. So very similar, just we don't get to do the next round. Now, can I can I stop you right there and just say, if you had your druthers, Allie, would it be identical? Would you race 21? Is there any reason you cannot race 21 days? I would completely race 21 days. Um, I don't think the distances need to be as long. Like I think the men's races are sometimes a little long. You know, we've, what do you do? Fast forward to the last 40K usually, because that's what I do. I don't need to go ride 140 miles day in, day out. Can I do that? Absolutely. Do the fans want to see that? Not particularly. Fair enough. And a great a great observation is it even from the viewer side, to, let's cut to the chase. Let's get to the highlights. But you as an athlete, Allie, is there any reason, let's just say that it's, you know, it's not 140. Let's say it's, you know, it's 80 miles a day, whatever it is. If the men are riding 80, do you feel like the women could, should, would ride 80? I mean, should there be two different races is there any reason for that with female athletes and male athletes being i mean at that level you're talking ultra athletes so should there be any different not that you guys would necessarily be a mixed competition and maybe that maybe that would be a good thing but is there any reason in this day and age to have a different set of parameters or challenges for women and men no i mean (laughs) You're a badass, right? And and you ride with a bunch of uh, of women that are badasses. Why should they not have the same? You know, I'm, I'm watching. I came late to this game. I'm, I'm watching Ken Burns' baseball documentary. I don't know if you ever watched this. Or you're into baseball. Even if you're not into baseball, it's just freaking phenomenally fascinating. I mean, amazing stories. And one quick note, Allie, was called the national pastime. And then a couple of the guys are going, you know, how can we really legitimately call this game the national pastime when for 60 years, six decades, black Americans could not play that game. Some of the best athletes in this country were eliminated, not allowed to play that game. When you look back at that, that takes the stuffing out of the whole thing because yes, we had greats, but those greats never had the chance to be matched up against other greats other legitimate greats. So who was truly great? How great was the game? I mean, it's kind of a mess when you start to not, if you really don't have a level playing field, then you, what, what do you got? Yeah, it's an interesting argument. I I, I appreciate seeing and, and competing in more of the races that align. Like, you know, you race flesh alone on the same day or, you know, who knows what the future is going to hold, how sports, maybe it's all mass. Like, that's what I do in gravel racing, and that's a blast. Like, just line up with 2,000 of your closest friends. Terrifying. Not fun for me. But then once the race starts splitting apart, much more fun. But, you know, I think I love lining up with just everybody. And it, it takes you off of a pedestal, too, and just, like, just drops you into the trenches. And it's it's a blast. So I, I like that future of the sport, and I think it's more inclusive that way. You're in the Giro. You're, you're there. Are you feeling physically good? Are you feeling, is your head in the game? Are you in good shape? Yeah, so we I, I raced the Giro d'Italia with the U.S. national team, and we actually won with Mara Abbott. Mara is from Colorado as well. We came back, and then I was racing on my with my trade team at Cascade Cycling Classic in Bend, Oregon, feeling pretty confident sitting top three in GC, which is general classification. So sitting top three overall in the race, feeling really fit. Just a fluke crash happened in front of me. I thought I got clear of it. Somebody crashed into me. So it was basically 45 miles an hour to zero. Hit my head pretty good and broke my pelvis. was unconscious with seizures. Didn't slide. So that was probably the biggest part. It was just the initial impact. And so no blood, 
you know, no sliding, just 45 miles an hour to zero. And I don't remember much coming in and out, but they ended up having to bring me up to a landing zone to then get life flighted out to the hospital. My dad was at the race and he was at the hospital before I was because it took so long to get me out of the canyon. And they actually used my road ID to call my dad like from their satellite phone. So he was at the finish waiting for me and they could call my dad to tell him that to meet me at the hospital. What does that mean? They use your road ID? Road ID is just like, it's a band that, that has your emergency contact information and any allergies, you know, it's just like an emergency, yeah, emergency contact little band you wear on your wrist. Like, and it was funny because at the start of the race, this is right when, I mean, road ID was my only sponsorship I had that was outside of my team. And I was on these commercials with Bob Roll in the Tour de France. And the, this is where everyone started calling me Allie because Bob like, oh, it's a date or is it a ride? You know, the like super cheesy, funny commercials. And the girls were making I fun love, of me. I'm a huge Bob Roll fan. So <laughs> I love Bob. I'm, smi- yeah. I'm smiling like an idiot right now. Love yeah. Bob Roll. I don't know anyone who doesn't. And so, I was okay. doing these like these commercials. And so, you know, the, the women on the line were kind of like, oh, you got your road idea and blah, blah, blah. You know, but it turns out when the race leaves you, emergency, like they don't know who you are. Like you're just somebody with a number on your back. Yeah. You need a microchip like a dog. You need something, right? You should be microchipped. I mean, there's this race caravan. You have like spare bikes. You got all these, you know, mechanical support. You got the CHP and then you're laying in the middle of the freaking highway and you got Darlene that's volunteering. That's like CPR certified. <laughs> you got an ambulance. <laughs> but like, they're going to come up to you laying in a heap and you're just number Thirty-four, whatever, whatever you are, right? Other than mm-hmm. having this race ID band that everyone was making fun of. Yeah. So I had the, like my road ID, and so they said, "Who do you want to call?" And I said, "My dad." And so yeah, I, I got life lighted out. I couldn't walk for a long time, maybe six, eight weeks. Sometimes pelvis like are just kind of cracked. Mine was like real bad, where I was bedridden for a while. And then this is a little bit, you know, this is 2010. So this is before concussions were a hip topic in the NFL. We know this now, but unconscious seizures and everything, of course, traumatic brain injury, a TBI, also broken pelvis, can't walk, need wheelchair. And as a professional athlete where I use my legs, you get very fixated on the fuzzy bones healing and getting your x-rays and your checkups. Like, when can I ride? When can I ride? When can I ride? So this first initial injury, I was so fixated on the really severe noticeable one, which was my pelvis. In another year, I actually came back and I was really fast that year in 2011, won a lot of races, back with the national team, racing all spring classics, and I get to go. Hold on a second, because so from some from such a traumatic injury, uh, I mean, just your pelvis surgery. What's surgeries? What 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 happened? What did you have to do? Fortunately and unfortunately, there's no real surgery you can do. You just have to let that bone heal, unless there was hip displacement. And I didn't have hip displacement. You know, thank Grampy for those strong bones. So my hip actually didn't displace. It just the shock of the impact just shattered all the way through my pelvis. Is there a, a cast, a brace? Just don't move. Wow. So are you laid up? How are you immobilized? What do you, what's the healing process? I literally just sat in bed for eight weeks. And I mean, trying to go to the bathroom is really hard. I mean, you can't like, I couldn't lift my leg, like little things like getting into the shower, you know, it's like a shower tub in my apartment, you know, and you couldn't like to lift your leg to get over that. Like I couldn't physically do that. (laughs) My leg wouldn't lift or just. Are you on your own or is your mom who was taking care of you? I was married at the time and that was, it was pretty rough. You know, it was tumultuous for us at the, enough. And, uh, it was it was hard. 
It was a negative impact, the accident? Yeah, I, I think so. I think it was it was hard for both of us. Um, I had been traveling a lot racing, and, and now I, I learned a lot through that, where it was one of the important learning experiences in my life of finding that life balance. You know, I think a lot of us become really fixated on goals and, and to not ignore other important parts in your life, too. Uh, so, I mean, I definitely had to learn that. And, and to go back and, you know, take the temperature of those relationships, you know, like as you're as you're pursuing your next career opportunity, physical, like challenge or endeavor to check your temperature on, you know, those that you love, because, you know, later in the story, I'll, I'll get to, you know, why that matters too. It's just, you know, important for us to, to, to make sure we're, we're taking care of, you know, those that, that love us. But yeah, it was, it was a difficult time, you know, having somebody be a caregiver and I got married pretty young. I was married at 22. And at this point, I'm like 24. Was your husband, was he a cyclist as well? Was no, he... he rode, but so it, that was just, it was hard. And then, you know, I, I was dealing with probably some head injury issues and our relationship was already struggling. And then now looking back to, I think just uh, some of the mental health issues that was probably occurring from the TBI, you know, that, that can cause some, you know, depression and I, I couldn't think straight, but it was really hard at the time to to figure out like where these impulses and all these emotions and craziness in my brain was coming from. Um, cause you're on pain meds. I, I can't like exist alone anymore. Like I like need a caregiver. And so I think that was really hard to decide, like distinguish what's emotions in my relationship, em- emotions regarding this like horrific crash and panic attacks or anxiety. And then also like if you're on like pain medication too, or whatever. So it was really hard to, to distinguish between that. It ended up working out the way it did. And so I, yeah, when I came back, I, I think this is where I, you know, if I could go back and tell myself and say, well, calm down, but I came back so fixated and goal oriented on being the best cyclist, you know, that I could be. And that's all I was for a year or two. I was not a good place to be. It's not very healthy. Like, yes, I was very fast, but I was not okay inside. Then I had another crash and I was racing for the USA national team at the Pan American games in 2011. And I just had a fluke endo crash. And then it was just like lights out. So TBI and then this concussion on top of my traumatic brain injury, I couldn't be pretending anymore. Like it couldn't, it was just kind of lights out. I couldn't drive. I couldn't read. I couldn't focus. And then that's where I thought, oh, wow, last year, I, oh, I was hiding all of that, you know, and it's so easy for us to do. And it's for those that aren't, you know, into sports, like you do this in your careers too, right? Like looking for those next promotions or saving up for a vacation for your family. Like you could, you know, you get these things and you put them on pedestals and you focus everything on and you just like forget sometimes like how much more you are than just what you like labeled yourself as. Did you have all these realizations on your own, Ellie? Did you, were you seeing a therapist? Were you, were you working on the mental portion of this? Did your doctors even think about that you would need that support or were you just finding your way on your own? For the first year, uh, between TBI and subsequent concussions, uh, it was just my own, which is why it was very unhealthy. You know, we kind of guard those, those negative thoughts and those vulnerabilities because especially you know, if you're an executive or a professional athlete, like you don't want to be like, hey, like public speaking gives me a panic attack. I got to go talk to my board of directors tomorrow. Like you hide that, right? Like <laughs> you take like a deep breath or, you know, I don't want to be go to a bike race and be like, ooh, left turn still don't balance very well that way. You know, because you don't want someone then to shut the door on the left turn and then you, you know, hit your brakes and don't make the moment in the race. And so I hit a lot of that. And then after the second injury, definitely required therapy. Um, 
And then I think that's when I have a wonderful team doctor I still actually work with. And I, she then realizes, whoa, you actually need more. I mean, we did some antidepressants, um, you know, ways just to calm down the brain, dealing with, you know, these anxiety and the panic and then the, you know, highs and lows. Um, and that made it really hard to compete because as an athlete, you love those highs and lows and, and you have medication then to take those away from you. And I just sat there at races angry and numb. Like you're at the start line. You're like, I feel nothing. Just evens it all out. Yeah. <laughs> and, and that's not why we do sport. Like you want to feel all the feels, you know, all the stuff that we just talked about, right. When you're blissing out on that, Ooh, look at the bark on that tree. It's flatline now for you. Right. You're it was just, just flatline. Yeah. But then I'm not like super, you know, I'm not crying and I'm, I'm actually like got to the start line, but then I'm just kind of angry or not even angry, but yeah, numb, just through this drug and pain haze, you said you were feeling angry, but did your body feel differently? Did when you asked for something, was it able to deliver? Was that different? I, I actually do think my body was was different. It's still kind of just flatlined. I still had, I had good results, you know. Um, I was fine, but I just didn't have that fire where you care as much. So I don't know if it was mental or physical because those are so aligned, you right, know. Right. Like you have to have that fire in your belly to push that extra limit. And that's when I'd get out and I'd be racing and I was fine, you know, just fine. I'd be like, why am I doing this? You know, and you have all that negative self-talk, which we still do, you know, even completely healthy human beings, like ask why you do it. Uh, why am I here? And, you know, you should have an answer for that. And, and for me, I finally realized the answer why I was there in this kind of even numb state was if I didn't show up to those start lines and do those races in this vulnerable, you know, kind of really bad time in my life, like I would never show up again. And then I knew that would be worse for me overall, if that makes sense. But you had that capacity to even have that kind of critical thinking, right? You knew, hey, this is, this is a milestone. If I don't push through this, it's going to have a lasting effect. I'm, I'm not going to come back. You yeah. knew that. I, I did. I mean, therapy helped with that too. And, you know, I, I worked with a neuropsychologist as well as a therapist and the neuropsychologist is wonderful. Um, and I ended up then pursuing a graduate degree in psychology because of it. It was fascinating for me. It was just like, I was chasing it so much. And that's where the therapy, the team of therapists and doctors that were with me helped that that's where I had to stop saying like, I'm coming back because I want to go to the Olympics or I'm coming back because I want to be the best you know, in the world, I had to be like, I'm coming back because it's going to save my life. And I will not like be okay if I don't come back. But look, when I come back, I'm going to be so much more than this previous shell of a human being I was like, I'm no longer going to live like a monk and weigh my food and care that much. I'm going to enjoy the freaking hell out of this. And my bike owes me something. And I'm also going to be something so much more than an athlete. I'm going to be go back to being that daughter, that cowgirl, that sister, that granddaughter that I am, and then also pursue this career and graduate school and everything else. And so then I found like more bliss on the bike when I'm like, yeah, I'm going to smash these pedals. I'm going to go hard. And then you're like, what if you suck? What if you fail? And then my head would be like, hey, you're still a kick-ass granddaughter. You got this great career in biotechnology. You're an excellent storyteller. So what? You break your pelvis. <laughs> you know, like, so what? I think that's where I found the more freedom to express myself on the bike and know that I was in a better place. And maybe I would never go to the Olympics, which I never did. And I'm okay with that. Are you really, as the competitive athlete and person that you are, Ali, have you come to terms with that? Yeah, I actually, I think I... I, I 
have. I mean, it would, yes, it would have been great. Sometimes I look at what it takes and I'm not sure at that point, if it had happened earlier in my career, I probably, yes. But later in my career, I don't think I had the capacity to, to do what it takes. And, and sometimes, you know, you look at the people that, you know, what they sacrificed and what they did. And I hate using the word sacrifice in sport because it's a privilege. So I don't use sacrifice, but you look at things that they had to do to, to make it happen. And I think I had cost enough people in my life enough at that point. Like, I'm not sure it would have been great for me. I don't know. You felt like you cost enough people. I, I just, I think there was a heavy cost for some of the, for those that really loved me when I was, kind of, when I was making my recovery and, and then to go and be like, now I'm going to, you know, do this next, like take that up one more notch and, and to risk like health and wellness and relationships over that. I, I think that cost was too high for me. And then, I, I mean, I had to one day actually sit down. Do I choose my health over results? So I guess that, yes, like that's where I came to terms with it. Do I choose my health over results? And to qualify for the Olympics or something like that, that's where going to require me to perform really consistently at multiple different disciplines and put myself in risky situations, the, the cost risk benefits to my family and myself was, was too high. I, I really think so. so. This gave you an, an opportunity to really step back, reevaluate, reassess where you were, where you are, and now where you, where you're going. It seems to me that you, know, you break the bone, the bone is stronger. You broke some bones and you've come out stronger on the other side of a pretty traumatic incident. Yeah. I mean, that's our really our only choice, right? Is to fortify through fire that way. I'm not saying it's easy. But you can curl up in the corner and rock back and forth and cry. That's always an option. I mean, still do that, don't you? Yeah, <laughs> Every once in a while. It's, it's another option. <laughs> I mean, it's, they're, all, they're all legit. You come back, you had the love and support of your family. Your marriage maybe was a casualty. It sounds like, Ali, there's a lot of acceptance, acceptance that has to happen along with this. The ego has to take a back seat and there has to be a lot of acceptance, which is easy for somebody to say a whole nother thing for someone to really go through. And it's a whole nother thing for an ultra athlete, I think, to go through. So that's the pretty big deal. Come out on the other side of that. You go back. Do you stay competitive? And for and for how long? What, what really happens next? Yeah. So I, I came back and I raced another six years and had some of you know, I'm on the podium at World Championships, Pomferrada, Spain. I raced for Astana. I raced for some amazing teams, won races, big races, like international. And uh, I was at one point ranked top 10 in UCI rankings. Like I, I did quite well. I just needed to prove to myself that I could, I guess, you know, kind of like going to grad, like going to enter a PhD program to try to learn to read again, which I did. It was just, you know, it's very expensive. Get, go to therapy instead of that. You know, it's just things I needed to do. And and then one day I just woke up and there you are racing these, you know, crazy races that everyone loves that, you know, want to go do. And I'm going, yeah, okay, well, you know, and I just lost that. Thrill is gone. The thrill was gone. And I thought, well, you're not going to go to the Olympics. You're ready. Like, that's pretty certain. Maybe another four years of working. I'm like, definitely don't have four years working towards this ambiguous goal. I'm like, okay, so you get to race Flanders and Flesh and you get to, you know, do all this fun things everyone wants to do. And I just wasn't even enjoying it. I didn't hate it. I just was, you know, eh, that was good enough for today, you know, no fire. And so I thought, well, that's really, here's your sign. So I just kind of wanted to make sure I could choose to exit that phase of my career on my own versus crashing and having it or, you know, getting injured or not getting signed or something like that and having other people dictate your future. 
So I, I told my team, I said, I think I'm done. And they're like, one more year, one more year. I was racing for Silence Pro Cycling. It was a, it was a really fun team. Um, all right, here's the deal. I want to do, which is now Unbound 200, and I want to do Dirty Kanza, which is what it was formerly called, um, a 200-mile gravel race in Emporia, Kansas. And that's like pretty much all I want to do next year. And they're like, well, that's, that's not how that works. You know, you've got to race road races and do all that. And I said, okay, and the Amgen Tour of California, because I work for Amgen. They're like, okay, well, if you want to race the Amgen Tour of California, you have to do all these other races. And then doing a 200-mile gravel race is your worst. <laughs> like, that's not good training for professional road racing. I'm like, well, that's what I want to do. And so I, I raced another year, and, and it was actually a really phenomenal year. It was 2017. I... Did all the, some races in Europe, got to go to China again. Um, I actually raced for the Pan American, Cha- like USA national team for the Pan American championships and raced the Amgen tour of California. And I had this lovely year of saying goodbye to races without telling anybody. It was like opposite of the year before where I just didn't have fire. I was like, this is my last time going up this mountain that I hate. Wow. It is gorgeous. If I was blowing up or doing really bad, like you kind of cheer for your competitors. You're like, you're doing great wow, look at you go, you know, instead of being like insecure. And like, it was a really fun, once again, I'm getting all cerebral, I get crazy. But it was just like, it was like, I honor you. Like, I see you, I honor you. Each race I did that year, it was a blast. And this came out of this knowingness that you had, that you were holding in a sense, this secret that this was your last hurrah. Yeah, at the world tour level of bike racing. Like, I didn't give up bike racing. I didn't retire from the sport. And then, you know, I, I won DK, and then I just started a career in gravel racing. Who knew that was going to be a thing? DK was Dirty Kansas. The, mm-hmm. the, the, yeah. Now uh, I'm bound, yes. And gravel racing is your current passion. Gravel Gravel riding is Let's your go gravel thing? riding. Gravel yeah, riding I, I, I have a hard time still calling them races because – they're mass star. I like calling them events. I just think it's it's a really cool sector of our sport that's bringing a lot more riders in. We can get off the roads, off the beaten paths, and uh, yeah, I've been racing for riding, uh-huh. <laughs> racing for Specialized uh-huh. the last four years. Incredible company, so I'm super fortunate. Kept a lot of my brand partners. I've worked with my whole been a SRAM athlete for my entire career. Like I'm 12 years going like on SRAM and work with Specialized and stayed with like all my current sponsors I had my whole career. And so yeah, and I get to go to events, help with product development, brand activation, product launches research. Super cool. I love it. Is there something else that really feeds you right now? The best part of 2020 for me was to start Saga Ventures LLC with my partner Blaze and to really own the fact that I am a free range entrepreneur and I have large biotechnology companies as clients and you know multiple clients that I work in communications and to own though how to like make an impact. So I was jealous of watching all the sourdough bread being made during the pandemic or books being written, and I would love to do that, but started this this company um, that's ultimately going to be a consulting firm, but um, my first project was to design, we designed bandanas with Sarah Sturm, and she's a fellow specialized athlete. She has her own creative uh, graphic design place, and we, we designed bandanas, and we sold them, and proceeds go to NICA's NorCal High School Cycling League, so that's been super cool, and I just awarded five scholarships awesome. for young student-athletes, so I'll get a ride with them in June, because now things are opening up a little bit more. It's all all uh, female-identifying female athletes uh, here in NorCal, so it's going to be super Wait, cool. Let, let's not gloss over that. So female-identifying athletes... 
that sounds accepting and open, especially in light of some of the conversations that have been going on in some of the states over these last few weeks. So where is that right now as far as cycling is concerned, how athletes identify it's, uh, you know, getting people to the start line and making the sport as inclusive as possible is really important. I know, like, there's there's a lot of pushes for, you know, diversity, inclusion, equality. And I think it's most importantly, I think cycling should be about providing start lines for people to get to and not banning that and, you know, making sure it's an open and accepting place. So it's about embracing every human being. Are you and Blaze in the minority in that thinking right now in the world? Or do you find that that is, that's kind of, there's a consensus on this? I I don't think it's the minority at all. Um, I think, I think our sport, it's, it's going to be about progressively changing predisposed rules and regulations, which does get more difficult at the highest level. But at the participatory level, I think it's it should just be about creating start lines and opportunities for people. I love that imagery, Ali, just of you saying, just I think our thing is, let's just get people to the start line. I just love that. That, that to me, that just says that's opportunity. That's at leveling the playing field. Just, hey, man, get to the start line. Just start. See what, see yeah. what you can do. Yeah, I think that's the best part of sport, right? Yeah, so we're, we're excited about other projects like that um, and more scholarships. And then, you know, there's a professional side of the company. But right right now for me, it was uh, really important to give back to this sport that's done so much for me. Um, you know, so many people have loved on me <laughs> throughout the years and, you know, brought me up when I felt really low and they didn't even know. You know, and I think when the, this, these articles came out about kind of my road to recovery that was dark and I didn't really share that initially, you know, because we were talking about hiding the, that vulnerability when you're trying to perform and people said, I'm so sorry, I didn't know. And I'm like, did you invite me to dinner? Did you give me lots of hugs? Did you like give me kudos on my rides? Like, yeah, you were doing great. Like, <laughs> it's okay. You know, like, did you accept me where I was when I was? I think that's just important for us to remember, like you're doing more for people than you realize. And so for me to be able to provide opportunity and, and you know, raise money and using the, my platform and creating a company to keep doing good things in our community, I think that's just going to be really important for me moving forward. How fortunate you are, too, as a person to be the recipient of that love and that care. Do you think you'll stay exclusively within cycling with Saga or it will be broader than that? Ultimately, I think the one thread that combines it all is that it's for a positive social impact. It helps to inherit the brilliant athleticism Allie was fortunate enough to have throughout her family. But then you gotta do something with that. You gotta go out there and get dirty and push yourself. The strength of body and mind, of friends and family, Allie Tetrick tapped into to overcome her many injuries might be inspiration for all of us when we think we've hit one bump too many. You can see Allie in all her glory and read more about her at alisontetrick.com. That's A-L-I-S-O-N-T-E-T-R-I-C-K.com. Thanks for hanging with Allie and I. I hope you'll join me again with new episodes dropping every Tuesday at 3 p.m. Mountain Time. If you enjoy No Bed of Roses, and I hope you do, May I ask you consider sharing the link to the show with your friends and family? One or two people? That's great. Three? Even better. We appreciate it. 
Until next time, stay safe and remember, you'll find no bed of roses wherever you find fine podcasts. Thanks. See you soon.